was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to bear witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This morning, we're beginning a new series through the Gospel of John, and we just read the introduction, or what's known as the prologue of the Gospel, and the amount of thought-provoking and soul-searching truth that the author fits in 18 verses is staggering, and somehow he did it both poetically and precisely. Many people have suggested that verse 12 is the heart of this passage, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And I think that's probably correct since it fits with the author's reason for writing the book. He says in John 20, 30 to 31, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. John, the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' 12 apostles, wrote the book so that you would believe in Jesus through that testimony and that you would believe and be saved through Jesus' death and resurrection and through him have life. Now, that probably doesn't come across as really very bold or radical to us now as perhaps it did when we first heard it or were first saved, but it does bring up a few questions, doesn't it? If I'm going to believe in Jesus, I want to know a few things. Who is he? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What makes him special that I should believe in him? Why do I need life if I'm already alive? What kind of life is he offering? And the Gospel of John seeks to answer these questions so that you will believe and have life in his name. And the introduction sets the stage for the rest of that story. And so the big idea this morning is very, very simple. It's just that you should believe in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a longtime Christian, I encourage you not to fall asleep on me yet. Don't assume that you know it all about Jesus. Instead, I want to encourage you to come to this book with a reverent, in a willing heart. 
you may find that it calls you to new depths in your faith in Christ, to new understandings about who he is and what he claims to be, what he claims to teach, and, and what he teaches us to be. If you're not yet a believer or you're a skeptic, my prayer for you is that through this message and, and those that follow in this series, you'll meet Jesus through the testimony of God's word and that you will believe in him. John starts his story, the story of the life of Jesus in the very beginning. In the beginning immediately reminds us of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we know that we're not talking about a beginning. This isn't once upon a time. This is the very beginning. This is creation. In the beginning was the word. We'll find out in a few moments that the word is none other than Jesus Christ, but we shouldn't get too far ahead of ourselves. The term word had a variety of uses then, just like it has a variety of uses now. We might use the word word literally to mean a, the smallest segment of our speech, a single unit of language. Maybe you're old school and you use it as a way to express agreement or approval by saying word up or something like that, you know? Or you might be watching a historical movie where someone asks, what's the good word? And of course, they don't mean a single word. They mean, how are you? Or do you have any good news? For the Jews, when they heard this word, word, they would have thought of God's word as the means through which he created the world, which fits the introduction of John's gospel. God created by speaking. Psalm 33, 6 puts it this way, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. God's word expresses his thoughts and his will, and they're brought into being through his word. For Greek speakers, the word word could convey the idea of logic, thought, or reason, which isn't too far off from the idea of thoughts or, or will that the Jews may have thought of. The word word was used by Greek philosophers as an expression to denote ultimate being or the reason for existence. And John uses a word at the beginning of his gospel, probably a gospel written to Jews, but those living in Greek culture, not in Israel, and probably to their Gentile fellows in those churches. And so he knows they'll all have a different understanding of what this word word means. And he intentionally uses a broad word to denote the essence of Christ's preexistence with God. He describes Jesus as the ultimate reason for being, the ultimate reason for existence, and the one who brings about the will of God and makes it exist. But he also redefines the word, word, throughout the gospel so that we can understand more about Jesus. He tells us the word was with God. He was not created by God. He did not become the word. He just was. But it's the next clause that's truly surprising. He says the word was with God and the word was God. How could the word be both with God and be God? The relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is something John's gospel will address in detail. But for now, he presents that truth concisely. Jesus, the word, was both with God and was God. The word was both with God and was God, but how should we understand that? 
And with the benefit of the rest of the New Testament and thousands of years of theological reflection, we can confidently say that God has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is known, of course, as the doctrine of the Trinity, three in one. And what John says is a brilliantly concise way of describing Jesus' own divinity and the beginnings of Trinitarian theology. I like the way that the Bible scholar George Beasley Murray puts it. He said, it denotes God in his nature as truly God as he was with whom he was, as he with whom he was, rather, yet without exhausting the being of God. The Word was as truly God as the one with whom he was, the Father, without exhausting the being of God. He was God, but he was not the Father. Jesus is God. He's not the only person in the Godhead. There's also the Father and the Spirit. And that's why John repeats in the second verse that the Word was in the beginning with God. But everything that can be said about God can be said of Jesus, the Word. God is eternal. So is the Word. God created everything. And verse 3 tells us that the Word created everything. The Word is God and yet is distinct from the Father, who is also God. And at this point, John is not trying to prove this to anyone. He was just introducing a truth that he'll support with his testimony throughout the gospel. So what should we do with this information at this point? If you're not yet a believer in Jesus, then this should help you clarify the claims of the gospel that will follow. As you read it or as you hear it when it's preached, you're not being asked to believe that Jesus was a man sent from God. He did not claim to be a great teacher a highly enlightened individual, or someone who was centered or grounded, as we might like to call it. He didn't speak to people about their wellness routines or how they thought about themselves as if those were the most important things in their lives. He claimed in word and action to be God. That's a pretty radical claim. Typically, it's a claim worthy of being dismissed out of hand. If any of you come to me after service and say, I am God, I won't give it two seconds thought. I'll just say, no, you're not. And I'll probably walk off and call the safety team, right? Because we know that's not true. Unless you have witnesses of this. Unless there's some proof to this claim. And so we might ask you, do you have people who were willing to die for the claim that you are God? Were you and are you willing to die and never confess that your claim to be God is a lie? Have you been raised from the dead and do you have witnesses that say they saw you alive again after you were dead? Do you have 2,000 years of people who say that the truth that you are God has changed their lives? The answer to that question is obviously no, you don't. But Jesus does. And so if you're a skeptic or you're not yet a believer, I would challenge you to take the claims of Jesus very seriously, to think about them, to hear them. Jesus has those witnesses, so his claims deserve consideration. In the words of an argument that was popularized by C.S. Lewis, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. That is, he is God. Because if a person claims to be God, he must be one of these three. If he was a liar, he was the best liar ever because he was willing to die for his lies and somehow convinced his followers to die for them as well. Few think of Jesus as a liar. Few think of Jesus as a lunatic. 
It was impossible to read his words and to come to the conclusion that he was out of his mind. His moral arguments were too clear. Read the Sermon on the Mount and you don't get the idea that here is a madman speaking. And who would have followed a madman? So we're left with the conclusion that he was who he claimed. What Thomas recognized him to be at the end of this gospel in John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. Have you seriously dealt with the claims of Jesus? If you're a believer, belief in Christ as the eternal word should inspire reverence. It's true, as John will point out, that God has revealed himself, that God has come near to us in his son. It's true that Jesus calls his followers in this gospel friends. It's true that he's approachable, that he's accessible, but we should not take those things for granted as if they were purchased cheaply. Neither should we approach Jesus as if he were just like us. True, he understands our weakness. That doesn't mean we understand his strength. And holy fear should accompany our approach to him. This means that we shouldn't approach reading his word or coming to church or to worship and hear God's word preached as if it were a religious obligation or as if we were in some kind of negotiation with God. We're giving him a little bit so that he'll give us what we want. Jesus is not diet God. He's not God light. He is God, very God. He is the eternal word of God. And our worship of him should take that seriously. Our hearts should be humble, ready to listen and obey. We should humbly conform our lives to his life since he is the creator and he is the source of life. You don't just add Jesus onto your life like he's an aftermarket part for your car or an accessory for your latest hobby that will make life just a little bit better. Maybe we do this when we immediately begin to doubt Jesus when life gets difficult. Perhaps the feeling of being put out by his demands reveals that we think of him with too little gravity. Could it be that our reluctance to hear his word and hold on to it in obedience is a symptom of a low view of who he is. Belief in Jesus means understanding that he is the eternal word and it means approaching him accordingly. The second reason you should believe in Jesus is because he is the light of life. This is what John expresses in verses four to 13 and Jesus states at John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Since everything was created through the eternal word of God, then he has life in him. He's the source of life. This means that you were created by God and your life comes through God's eternal word, Jesus Christ. But what does it mean that the life was the light of men? John wants us to understand that the life he's talking about is not just biological life. It's true that even your biological life comes through Jesus' creative power. You are physically alive because of him, but there's something more to the life that Jesus gives, and to describe it, John uses the contrast of light and darkness. Light and darkness have been used to describe good and evil for a very long time. But the light of life was not just a source of light. He was the light. He is the light. And the life that he had is what illuminated humanity's lives. 
But the conflict of light and darkness is not an evenly matched fight. When the light shines in the darkness, the darkness cannot overcome it. And when the light of the world came into the world, it may have looked like darkness put up a good fight, especially when Jesus was crucified. But the conclusion of that battle was inevitable. Jesus rose. And John demonstrates that the eternal word was the light by referring to another John, John the Baptist. He was sent from God, but was not himself God like the word is. And he was not the light. He bore witness to the light. It's true that there are many people that come and they claim to be enlightened. Many have done really good things, moral things, maybe even right things. Whatever their motives, whatever their intentions, there's always a difference between someone who claims to be enlightened and Jesus. They are not the source of light, so they cannot be the light of life. Jesus is. And unless their words and their works point to Jesus, they're actually moving people into darkness no matter how good their deeds appear to be. And through the imagery of light and darkness, John highlights a concerning part of the gospel. Many people reject it. Many people reject Jesus. The true light was coming into the world. The light of the world reveals the true nature of God and life and does so freely to anyone. He gives light to everyone. But although the world was made through him, the world did not know him, and it still doesn't. That's because since the fall of humanity into sin, the world exists in darkness, and the world loves darkness. You can imagine it this way. I'm sure you've spent time in a dark room for a long period of time, and then you came out of a door outside, and it was noon, and the sun was shining bright, and you could hardly bear it. What do you do? You squint, you cover your eyes, you try to get away from the light, you complain that it's too bright. And so it is with the eternal word of God coming into the world. People had so hidden from the light, living in ignorance and rebellion against God, that when the light came into the world, they hated it. They tried to hide from it. They tried to paint ultimate good as evil. They tried to paint the the source of light as the source of darkness, and they tried to extinguish the light. Worse than that, John 1.11 tells us that his own people did not receive him. The Jews, the people set apart by God as his own, did not recognize the eternal word of God. Those who had been called by God, delivered by God, given the law of God, heard the word of God through the prophets, did not recognize the word when he came into the world. And this seems like really bad news, but it actually serves to highlight some really good news. John 1, 12 to 13 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Jews were the children of God, but they rejected the light. But God was making a new people based on that light, and this people would not be defined by bloodlines. This people would be defined by faith, faith in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you'll have life in his name you will become a child of God. And if you're already familiar with John's gospel, you'll know that this is a huge theme, one that points to one of the most famous passages which says, you must be born again. It won't do for you to say, I'm a Jew. I grew up in church. I was raised Catholic. Jesus says, you must be born again. 
And here John summarizes what it means to be born again and to have life in his name. And throughout the gospel, Jesus will offer people life. But he isn't just talking about biological life. He's talking about spiritual life. He means that he can save you and restore you to your real purpose and to meaning and to have a relationship with God the Father. So right off the bat, this gospel, in this gospel, we understand and have to deal with this claim that there are not multiple means of enlightenment for life, but there is just one way for your life to be enlightened, and that is by receiving the light of life. And when you do, you won't be a little more centered, you won't be a little more grounded, you will be born again. Have you been searching for meaning? Whether in your thoughts or in your strivings or in your internal desires, Jesus is the light, not only of the world, but he is the light of life. So if you are going to figure out what life is, it won't happen apart from Jesus. I'm not saying you can't have feel-good moments in your life, doing good things. You can, people do all the time. But if you want to know real life, that's Jesus. Are you offended by the claim that Jesus is the only way to have real life? Perhaps it's not because you're so open-minded, but because you've been in the dark so long that your eyes rebel against the light. Maybe you're not as enlightened as you think that you are. And what you're afraid of is that if Jesus is the light, that means you can't make up your own meaning for life anymore. You're not the source of light anymore because there's someone who literally is the light and the life. Christian, are you living like Jesus is the light of life or like he's a bit of mood lighting for your life? Have you added him as a nice accessory to your life or does he define life for you? Being born again means that you now have life in Christ, not life with Christ. Life with Christ is man-made religion, a religion made by you so that you can try to feel good about the way your life is without actually conforming your life to the life of Christ. Life in Christ means that your life has now been taken up with Jesus, with his direction, with his concerns. Are you trying to make Jesus live with you or are you alive in Jesus? You should believe in Jesus because he is the eternal word, because he is the light of life, and finally, because he is the unique revelation of God. Verse 14 goes back to the word of God language from verses one to two, and incredibly, it tells us that the eternal word became flesh. Notice the very intentional use of verbs that John has here. Verse one says, the word was God. He always was. Verse 14 uses a different verb and says, the word became flesh. He wasn't flesh. He became flesh. Take careful note that it doesn't say he just took on flesh, though that's not a terrible way to point to put it, but we could mistake that language for the idea that the spirit of God filled an empty body but that's not what the doctrine of Christ's incarnation actually teaches. The eternal word became human. He was fully God, he was fully human. And this was not like a presidential visit to a disaster area where sleeves are rolled up 
and the politician is out in the sun just long enough to get a little glisten of sweat, shake a few hands, pass out a few water bottles, and the cameras are rolling the whole time. The word dwelled among us. John is saying, I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. I lived with him. In a letter he later sent to the churches that he was overseeing, you can almost hear the excitement in his voice when he writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. I know we like to apply scripture to ourselves, but you can't say, I touched him. So that's John's job. John says, I was there, I touched the word of God. The word John used that is translated dwelt meant to pitch a tent, and it was the Greek word used to translate the Hebrew for tabernacle. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the tabernacle was the precursor to the temple and was the place where God's presence dwelled among the Jewish people. And now Jesus, John says, has fulfilled that. He's the new way that God dwells with among his people. But he doesn't just live among us. He came as one of us. God spoke to us in a way that we could understand by coming as one of us. And so John could say that he and others who witnessed Jesus' life could see his glory full of grace and truth. In John 1.15, John the Baptist is once again used as a comparison for Jesus. Like John, Jesus was a man. And in that culture, because, Jesus, or because John was older, even though he was only slightly older, greater honor would have been given to him. Yet John says that Jesus is greater because though John was born first, the word is eternal. He actually came first. In other words, the honor due Jesus is not based on the time of his birth, but on his divine nature, though veiled in flesh. And from the fullness of the incarnate word of God, we have received grace in place of grace. He's full because he's fully God and fully man and because he has fulfilled the purpose of the tabernacle and fulfilled the purpose of the law of God and brought God's presence to his people. And he brought us the fullness of God's grace. The phrase translated grace upon grace is better translated grace in place of grace. But what does that mean? John tells us in verse 17, says the law was given through Moses. The law was a form of God's grace. It was a gift given to teach God's people who he was and how to relate to him. But it was a preparation for the full display of grace. If you're having a birthday party, you know you save the big gift for last, right? You don't give the big gift and then the little ones because nobody's going to care about the little ones after they've opened the big one, right? You give the little gift first as a preparation to build anticipation, to prepare excitement for the big gift. And that's how we can think of the law and then the coming of Jesus. The law was a preparation for, in anticipation of something greater that was to come. And so grace was given in the law, a gift, but it was replaced by a greater grace so that grace replaced grace through Jesus Christ. Maybe the other smaller gifts are forgotten when the big one comes out. And so too, when Jesus came, the grace of God given in the law was fulfilled and surpassed. And now, through Jesus, we have a fuller understanding of God's character and his love, his grace, and his truth. And so John concludes that 
while no one has ever seen God directly, only indirectly, as when Moses asked, show me your glory, and God covered him up, and then when he had passed by, the Bible uses this metaphor to say that Moses got to see the back of God. Just the, the trailing end of his glory was almost too much for Moses to bear. And yet, when Jesus came, he, saw, he demonstrated the glory of the only begotten God who is at the Father's side, and he has made him known. Jesus uniquely reveals who God is. To see Jesus is to see God. To know Jesus is to know God. But what does all that mean for us? It means that none of our modern gobbledygook about getting in touch with the transcendent or a higher power will do. None of the nebulous nonsense about finding ourselves or being grounded or being centered can count toward salvation. None of our ambiguous attempts at spirituality without anything concrete can ever hope to save us. God has revealed his word incredibly specifically. The word became flesh. And so if you want to know God, soul searching and navel gazing won't do it. Don't go on a quest to find yourself. The Father sent the Son, God in the flesh, to find you. And if you go off on an internal spiritual journey to find God, you will inevitably end up making yourself a God in your own eyes. You will find that there are all kinds of ways of enlightenment, but you will never find the true light. You will always avoid the true life. But the real God, the one who created the world and gives you life, will have none of that. So if you want to if you want true spirituality, you must receive God's grace. You don't come on your own terms. You come by faith in the eternal word of God who became flesh and revealed God's glory. You believe in the gospel message of salvation, that God loved you enough to send his son to die for your sin and to redeem you out of that darkness. And for you, Christian, this means that you don't conform your life to some nebulous spirituality either. We are not pursuing our feelings. The world's ideas of self-help and wellness and centeredness or being grounded are not enough. We are called to conform our lives to Jesus. He is the light. So are you conforming your life to him? He's not just the feeling you get when your favorite worship song is played. He's the word of God who preached the Sermon on the Mount and called us to live it in his grace. He's not just our good spiritual intentions or theological reflections, but the incarnate word of God who said, this is my command, that you love one another. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in the incarnate word of God who instructed us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You should believe in Jesus because he is the eternal word because he is the light of life and because he is the unique revelation of God. Do you believe in him? Maybe you're wrestling with that question right now. Obviously, the kind of belief that we've spoken about today is not merely believing that something is true, though that's a start. It's also trust. You entrust your life to God through Jesus. If you've been listening to this message and your heart is burning in you, you've heard the good news that God loves you enough to send his son Jesus to die on the cross for your salvation and that he raised him from the dead on the third day. If you believe that word, 
If you believe in him, you will be a child of God and have real life in his name. And I want to call on you this morning to respond and follow Jesus. In just a moment, I'll give you an opportunity to do that. Believer, is your faith in Christ characterized by the reverence and life-conforming obedience that we've spoken of today? Or are you treating Jesus as if he's an accessory to your life? See, here's an interesting thing to think about the way that John uses the word life, the way that Jesus used the word life as recorded in the Gospel of John. He doesn't talk about your life, how you're living your life. He refers to himself as the life. And so Jesus doesn't think of, and the Gospel never presents Jesus as an enhancement for your life, but as the only option for real life. Sometimes even believers start to get that a little fuzzy. We start to think that Jesus is some kind of sticker or decal we put on our cars and like a little bit of a good luck charm for us in our lives. And he'll bless us a little bit. and We fulfill the basic requirements that we think are going to make Jesus happy. But there's not the deep-seated, life-conforming, transformational power still working in us that should be because we've been born again. And so we need to come back to that and say, Lord, bring me back to my first love where I recognize that my life was in you and through you and that real life can only be found in you. And let me stop treating Jesus as if he's an accessory to my life and start treating him like he is the life and conforming my life to him. Maybe your eyes are even squinting a little bit at the light of Jesus Christ recently. Even as a believer, maybe this happens because you have allowed things into your life too much that are of this world and that are sinful. And so when confronted by the gospel or when confronted by the life of another believer or someone who wants to come alongside and encourage or help you, you turn away, you squint with your life. You want to avoid those circumstances and situations. You don't want to think too much about it. You don't want to pray about it because what's actually going on is you are allowing the world to influence you once again and you're turning away from the light toward darkness. And today I would encourage you turn to the light of life Yes, the squinting may take place for a moment. It may feel like there is a burning, but it is a holy burning that purifies you and gives you true sight because Jesus is the light. Are you walking in the light of life? Are there things of darkness or sins that you've hidden and you've cultivated? Will you bring those to the light today and let him overcome and forgive them? Jesus is not like a nice accessory light you put in your room for a little bit of mood lighting. He's the way, the truth, the life. He's a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. And he calls you to conform your life to him. Will you renew your faith in Christ through reverence and submission and obedience, acknowledging that he is not a good idea? He's the revelation of God to men, uniquely so, and the only way of salvation. I'm going to ask Shana to come. I'm also going to ask if our prayer partners and any deacons, deaconesses, or pastors who are present, if you'd make your way forward right now, and you'd just be available and ready to pray with people. Because here at the end of the service, we just want to give opportunity for people to come and to pray. And if that's, uh, if, 
If you're here and you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus and today as we've spoken and you've heard the word of God, your heart has been burning in you. You've sensed this is me. I need to know Jesus. I need to know Christ. I need to be right with him. I've run from him. I've been hiding from the light. Today is a good day for you because the light is shining on you today and you have opportunity to repent and believe in him. Will you do that? In just a moment, when, when I pray and we close the service officially, if, if you know that you need to give your life to Jesus today, you need to come to the light and receive, believe in him, I wanted you to just make your way forward and pray with one of these prayer partners. If you're a believer and you just, you're sensing that the Lord has done something in your life today, he's been pressing, calling you to something, maybe just a renewal of your faith, maybe a, a, a a call to conform your life more fully to Jesus, maybe a, a call to walk more fully in the light and not see Jesus as an accessory to your life, but as your life, then I wanna give you opportunity to pray today as well. Coming to, to pray with another believer is not a shameful thing to do, and so I wanna discourage that thought that, uh, man, I'm, I'm, I, this is gonna be you know, admitting that I'm the worst person here, and that you know, everybody's gonna look at me and think, oh, that person, if they're even saved, they're just barely saved. Look, who cares? This is, this is between you and the Lord this morning, and an opportunity for you to spend a moment with a brother or sister believing together that God is doing a work in your life, and he is, he is renewing that original work of being born again. Maybe you can come in the attitude of David, as he prayed in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And you could just come and pray that with another believer and believe the Lord for a work in your life. I'm going to pray and as such close the service. But I would ask that if you're going to leave, that you would leave respectfully. But if you want to spend a moment in prayer, just allowing the light of Christ to search your heart. Or you need to give your life to Jesus. Please don't hesitate to come to seek the Lord with a brother or sister. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you today. We thank you so much for John, the gospel writer. And we thank you that you inspired him by your Holy Spirit to write such, such clear and concise words that help us to understand who Jesus is. We thank you that, that through the good news of Jesus that we have an understanding of where life is and who the real source of light is and, and, and where to come when we don't know what to do and, and where to turn when we know there are things in our lives that don't please you. We thank you, Lord, that through Jesus we come and by faith in him are made children of God. Lord, for a moment, I just want to celebrate that, that we are children of God as we've believed in you. What an astounding thought. We know we're not your unique son like Jesus, but we are children of God, brought into your family, made right with you, given an inheritance in your kingdom, given an assurance of eternal life, given hope, given light, given a future. Jesus, we thank you that you have made us the children of God, as we put our faith in you. We rejoice and celebrate that this morning. And Father, we ask that you would help us by conforming our lives to Jesus to walk and to live as your true children. We love you. We thank you for that and for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
If you want to pray, please don't hesitate. The altars are open. There are men and women here who would love to spend a moment and just pray with you, agreeing with you for the work God is doing in your life. Otherwise, have a great week, and we'll see you on Wednesday when we continue in prayer. Go in God's grace and peace.